Good evening. Again, good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 15 this evening. We're going to look at chapter 15, but I want to quickly just recap the when we were last together, last Thursday evening, we looked at uh, chapters 13 and 14. And these two chapters, 13 and 14, were very difficult uh, to... To hear, certainly this is a topic that is very difficult to even consider, uh, but nonetheless it is there in, in the Word of God, and, and let me just recap it for you. You recall in chapter 13 that Amnon, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> who was David's firstborn, he had a half-sister whose name was Tamar, and she was a very attractive young lady, and uh, Am- Amnon was so infatuated with her, and uh, the Bible says that he loved her, but I think he lusted for her. This, this is so interesting. He, he had such a, a lust and a desire for her that he began to lose weight. And when you get to the point where you're losing weight over somebody, you got some real things to deal with. <laughs> and so he was completely out of control with his passions and desires, and he wanted her so bad he'd do anything to get her. And so finally, his cousin Jonadab uh, told him, says, you know, look, let's hatch this plan, and here's what you do. And so he, he told him this plan, and the plan was to feign that he was sick and that he would go into his house. And as the firstborn of King David, he would have attendants. He would have all these things. And Jonadab says, you know, fake like you're really sick, and your father will send, you know, and ask for Tamar to come to make you cakes to eat, and then... And so David found out that his firstborn son, Amnon, was sick. And so he tells Tamar, his half-sister, who was born from another wife, because David had six wives and six uh, um, brothers from different wives in Hebron when he ruled there for six and a half years. And so Tamar goes, and she does exactly that. And in the process of her cooking cakes for him and him desiring her to feed him, the cakes. He, took, he asked all of his attendants to leave, which is a red flag, by the way. If you're a young lady here tonight, and there's other people in the room, and you got some guy hitting on you, and you realize that he wants everybody away except for you, you might want to leave as well. But anyway, um, so she does come, and she does, does those things, and Amnon forces her and lays with her against her will, rapes her. And, and then after that, if that couldn't be any worse, he he, he thrusts her out of his house in broad daylight, making it look like he has refused her or that she has done something against him, the firstborn son. So he casts her out, making her look even worse now, making her look like it was her fault that she was castigated. And, and she was totally devastated. Her half-brother, or I'm sorry, her real brother, Absalom, because Absalom and Tamar were, were full uh, brother and sister from the same mother, and David, of course. So Absalom says, you know, don't let this concern you. You know, kind of keep quiet about it. And, and so she does. She's obedient. And, um, and then David hears about it, and then he gets angry, but he does precisely nothing about it. And, and then we find out um, that Absalom, he finds out about this after two full years. He he invites his brother to a, uh, a feast, and he ultimately kills him. 
He kills him and then he flees to Jeshur, which is an area located east of the Sea of Galilee, up northeast of the Sea of Galilee, quite a bit, probably around 70 miles away from Jerusalem. And so he flees there to Jeshur, and we'll look at that again, why he did that. Why did he go there? That's a good question, and we'll answer that. And we did last week, if you remember, but we'll talk about it again. So he goes there. And then Joab tries to get David to forgive his son and to bring him back into Jerusalem. He hatches another plan with another woman to come in before the king and to give him a a false story, a false narrative in order to get uh, to retrieve Absalom from Jeshur. And finally it does work. Absalom was in Jeshur for about three years, the Bible tells us. And so finally he comes back to Jerusalem. He's there for two entire years in Jerusalem where his father is, but his father doesn't make face-to-face contact with him at all. He's still holding uh, a grudge against his son for killing his firstborn son. And so David's life is falling apart. And why is it falling apart? Because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And this is a, an event that we know very well. But God told David that these things would occur, and that, in fact, God had made a prophecy uh, against David because of these things that he, had, that he had done. In fact, Nathan came to David after this sin issue with David, or with with uh, Bathsheba, and and then the killing of Uriah, her husband. And this is what the Lord said to him. He says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And here is the fight, here is the blow, the hammer blow. The consequence of David's sin, God lays it out for him. He says, now therefore, because you've done these things, the sword shall never depart your house. Because you despise me, notice that when we sin, we may sin against somebody else, but ultimately it's an affront against God initially because we're violating his commandments, right? So notice that. He didn't say it was an affront to, uh, against Bathsheba and Uriah. Certainly it was, but God lists it in importance and he's the most important, then people. So he says, you have despised me by doing these things. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up not only that, but I will raise up adversity against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And so these these consequences that God had laid out for David that are coming his way have already begun. Because number one, Amnon is dead. Absalom, he, he went into exile for three years to Jeshur, up in the northern part of Israel. And we're going to see that as we go along here, we're going to see that Absalom himself is going to get into a lot of trouble. He's going to seek to overthrow his dad's throne. David's throne. He's going to sleep with his concubines, which in that it was like his harem, if you will. And God already prophesied that these things were going to happen. 
And not only that, we're going to find out later on down the road, spoiler alert, that Absalom is also going to be killed by none other than David's nephew, Joab, the commander of his own army, a relative of Absalom. And Joab would be the one to ultimately kill him. And so the sword is going every which way. All these consequences are coming to pass. And, and, and you see, God loves us enough to not allow us to continue in our sin. And, you know, I mean, he forgives us when we ask him for forgiveness, but there are still consequences. And that's one of the things about these chapters that we're going to look at that are so important to remember is that David was forgiven. Remember, after he had... After um, God had told him these things, David really cracked like an egg. He really repented. His heart was broken. He was changed man forever after this. But, but God did say, but you've brought a great occasion against the enemies of God. And because you've done these things, I have to allow these things to happen, David, in your life. You're forgiven, and, and I love you, and our relationship is restored, but you've got to understand there's a consequence for sin. Right? Isn't that what the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23? That the wages of sin is what? It's death. And again, it could be death physically, or it could be a death of a relationship, of, of a myriad of types of relationships that we might have. There's always a death as a result of sin. Always a death. There's mistrust, there's betrayal, there is uh, lying, and all kinds of things that happen that breach this trust and so these things happened, and Absalom finally comes back into Jerusalem. He and David finally make eye contact, and there appears to be a, uh, you know, David hugs him and he kisses him. I don't know if that constitutes forgiveness. You'll see if you've got a King, depending on what version of Bible you have tonight, if you've got a new King James Version, uh, you may see in, uh, in chapter 14 there, right before verse 25, you may see a heading that says, David forgives Absalom. I don't know if he did or not. Just because you hug and kiss somebody doesn't mean everything's brushed under the water, you know, under the bridge, right? So I don't know about that, but it could be. But notice what it says. After this, it happened that Absalom, we're just going to read down through the first 12 verses, and then we're going to go back. It says, after this, it happened that that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice, if it were only true. But, you know, behold, it's not. But I, I just, if you just come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. No, I'm only kidding. So here is Absalom just feigning the hypocrite. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And now it came to pass after really four years. You might want to mark that in your Bible. It's really four years, not 40 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. That Absalom said to the king after four years, Please, let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow 
while I dwelt at Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. And then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently, notice, and did not know anything. And then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And so we see a treacherous thing happening here. We see treason, really, in Absalom wanting to overthrow his father. Now, one thing we have to understand about David at this time is David was severely wounded for the sins that he had done. He was paying the price for it. He knew he was forgiven, but nonetheless... He felt like a man who really had no authority any longer. Even though he was still the king, in his own family, he just felt like a man that just had no authority, no moral authority in his family. And so David did precisely nothing when he heard about the the issue with Amnon and Tamar. He did nothing. It said he was angry, but he did nothing. We're going to see that even though Absalom killed Amnon, what should David have done? He should have followed the law. He should have brought his son to justice. And however that was meted out, we knew what the law said, but we know that there's also mercy in the law, depending on the person's heart and their attitude. David, after all, deserved death, didn't he? For, For twice, for the murder of Uriah and for sleeping with his wife. But yet God says, David, you're not going to die. You're forgiven. And God knew David's heart. David had a heart after God's, even, even though he made these horrible mistakes. And I want to encourage you tonight. You know, you've, you may be sitting here, and you may be thinking to yourself, you know, I've made some really bad mistakes. And I pray that you've taken them and put them all under the blood of Christ. Do you understand the promise that was given to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you have to believe that, because if you don't, then all your sins are still before you. But I want to encourage you to walk in the newness of that truth, of that promise that God had made. And if you do, happy are you. And you know the feeling when, when you know that you've been forgiven. I remember the day that I was forgiven of all my sins. Someone shared the gospel with me, and I literally, after I left that meeting with that person, I went up to my room. I remember it like it was yesterday. I went up to my apartment in Deland, Florida, on the campus of Stetson University, and I had the apartment to myself. And I went up there, and I laid flat on the ground, and I cried convulsively like a baby. And I begged God to forgive me. I said, Lord, I will do anything you want me to do. You just take, you consume me. Forgive me for everything I've done. Just wash me clean. And I tell you, he got a hold of me that day. And he still got a hold of me. Does he got a hold of you? I hope he does. And let him have everything. Let him have you all completely. And when you know you're forgiven, boy, that changes your life. All of a sudden, even though you've made mistakes and you've sinned greatly, God has forgiven you. And don't let the consequences that you may still be enduring, don't let those consequences be the thing that reminds you of that sin and just rubs your nose in it. The devil wants to do that to you, and even your own flesh feels like you deserve it. But God says, I have forgiven you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. So why then 
Do I plague myself? Why then do you plague yourself by continually going back to the grave clothes of, of, of the things of the old life that God has forgiven you and rumbling through those things going, oh, I wish I had done that. I'm so sorry, God. God's like, why are you crying? Have I not forgiven you years ago for that same thing? Oh, but I don't, I don't feel it. I just don't. And God's going, well, do, do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you, but, well, not really. We have to trust him, folks. Listen, his word is truth. Isn't that what he said? I mean, if it's not the truth, then we might as well just close the book up and let's go have a drink at the nearest bar. Seriously, if, if that is the case, but we know that that is not the case. His word is truth. And when he says what he means, he means what he says. But you have to believe it. And that takes faith. And I pray that God gives us all a greater, more abiding faith to trust him and to trust his word and to be willing to put it all on the line for this, for him. Put it all on the line. Say, I'll put this on the line. <laughs> you can take my life, but I believe everything that's in this book. I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus? You must. You must believe in him. You must be born again. It's not a, a question of, well, it might be a good idea. No, Jesus, didn't he tell Nicodemus, a very religious man, you must be born again? And he was a religious guy. Probably put us all to shame by his rituals and his strict adherence to the law. And yet he didn't know God. He needed to be born again. And so, in spite of all these sins, let's go back to verse 1. Notice, now it begins to unfold. It's already begun to unfold in David's life, but now we see it. It says, after this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses. And having this kind of entourage was indicative of royalty. This is what people in royalty did. And it was something that only a very important person would do. And by the way, this was the first time that something like this had been done with horses and chariots. It was the very first time. Saul wasn't, and when he was anointed, he didn't come strolling in on horses and chariots and having 50 men run before him. David didn't come to the throne in that capacity. But now, Absalom, he comes. Horses and chariots, 50 men running out in front of him and uh, notice that Absalom provided himself with this entourage. His father didn't give it to him. He assumed and presumed upon the throne. And in the natural, I guess it was right for him to do so in a sense, because we'll look at that. Have you heard of a term primogeniture or primogeniture? Primogeniture is the name. It's really the right of the firstborn. And so really that's what he was acting under, Absalom. He was acting under this idea, hey, I'm the firstborn, Ab, or Amnon has already died, the second son of David, Daniel, or Chiliab, or Kiliab, he's pronounced a couple different ways. He died when he was young. Now, I'm the next guy in line. I am the heir apparent. It's only right for me to do this. So my father hasn't done anything so far, and I'm just going to take the bull by the horns, and I'm going to make it happen. going to make it happen. He's going to do it his way. We're going to see how that works out for him. But remember the warning. Remember how... Absalom did this. And remember the warning that God gave to the children of Israel. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You might want to just write a note next to your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. And let me just read it to you. Because this was the warning that God gave to Israel before Saul became king. 
The Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people because they asked for a king. We want a king like all the other nations around. We want to be just like everybody else, don't you? You know, isn't it ironic that people today, especially teenagers, they'll say, I want to be, I want to be unique, I want to be an individual, but yet they want to dress and act and listen to the same music like everybody else, but they want to be unique. And I, 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 I'm so glad that they have that heart, but they're just in a place where they're not mature enough to kind of deal with, okay, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm comfortable with being who I am because they don't even know who they are yet. So I don't blame them for that necessarily, but the people of Israel wanted to be like everybody else. And so the Lord says, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And so according to the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and they've served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice, however. You shall solemnly forewarn them, show them the behavior of the king who will reign over him. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. And to be his own, and, and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. Did Saul do that? No. Did David do that? No. Did uh, Absalom do that? Yes. And we're going to see one of his other sons later on in First Kings, Adonijah. He's going to do the very same thing. They're going to have men to go before their chariots, and he will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over fifties. And will and will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And David, Absalom, and even David's son Solomon did not heed the advice of these things. And it goes on in that chapter, in First Samuel chapter eight. It goes on and talks more about how you're not to multiply wives and multiply horses and. David didn't do that so much, although he did multiply wise, but then his son, oh my goodness, he had chariot cities, uh, and, and we visit one of those when we go to Israel up in Megiddo, and there's stalls where the horses used to be, and he multiplied women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Think of that. What's your name? I mean, a, a thousand ladies, that's like three a day. You know, it's like if they, if they came into the palace, it's like, what is your name again? All those wives... And God warned him not to do it, and yet Solomon did these things, and it was to the ruin of him in his later years. But Absalom made the assumption that he should be king, and although he won the hearts of the men of Israel, there was something that he was either ignoring or didn't know altogether, and that was that the Lord had spoken to David concerning who would reign after him. And it seems like another failure on David's part that he didn't make this very clear to his sons. He could have made this very clear. And why didn't he do it? Why wasn't it widely known? Perhaps David was trying to hide this, maybe to hide Solomon, who was very young at this point. Maybe he was trying to hide that information from everybody until he got a little older, because he would too would be a target from his other sons. In fact, Herod, you, you recall uh, King Herod, Herod the Great, some people said that it was... Um, Safer to be a pig in Herod's house than to be one of his sons because he murdered most of his sons. Safer to be a pig in his house than to be one of his sons. And so maybe he was protecting his son. We really don't know. But notice 
God chose Solomon. Let me read to you. You might want to just make a note in second, uh, right here in your margin of verse 1 there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. This is called the Davidic covenant, and God gave to David a covenant that he made with him. And notice what he says. He says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Notice, who will come from your body. Now, when did David have his other sons in Hebron? He had six sons and six wives from Hebron. We read about them in chapter 2 of this book, right? Now we're in chapter 7. So those sons, all those sons, Amnon, Chiliab, uh, uh, Absalom, and the others, Adonijah and the others, they have already been born. But what is the promise that God gives to him now in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel? He says, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your own body, who will come, not who has come. Do you understand? I mean, you've got to read it very clearly like that because this is still yet to come. So that leads David to believe, okay, of the sons that I have currently, none of them are going to be my successor. Follow me? And so, who will come from your body, and I will establish his throne. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, right? So we need to remember that the Lord said uh, this uh, after his other six sons had been born, and and that's laid out for us in chapter 2. And so this clearly shows that God had someone else in mind that would still yet be born to David. And of course we know that that is Solomon, who would be born from Bathsheba and David. But there was an understanding concerning Solomon being the next king by at least David and Bathsheba. Again, David didn't seem to make everybody aware of this. His sons certainly didn't know. Otherwise, Absalom wouldn't be going through all this trouble making himself to be the next king if he knew that Solomon was the one. So David probably should have made it abundantly clear so there's no question. But again, David is in a state where he's wounded, and at this point in his life, we believe he may even be sick, and he's in the latter part of his reign, and so he's not doing so well on many fronts, and he's letting things slip. Things are slipping away from him. And he didn't tell anybody initially. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, Beginning in verse 11, let me just read it to you. You can make a note of it again in your margin of your Bible. This event takes place after Absalom was killed. We know that that's going to happen shortly. And now Adonijah was the logical heir. And so, so now the fourth son steps up after Absalom has died and says, I'm going to be king. And he does the whole same thing that his brother did with the chariots and the horses and the 50 men in tights running before him, right? And so they weren't in tights. I don't really know what they were wearing. But... Um, it says this, So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, have, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Hagith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. And he said to her, Go immediately to the king and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me? And he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? So there is some understanding in the inner in the inter circle, if you will, but it hadn't really got out. The inner circle knew, but nobody else knew. And so she's like, they just crowned your your other son king, but I thought Solomon was going to be the next one king. 
And so finally it forces David's hand. And it also tells us, again, another place to mark in your Bible next to this is 1 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, because this is the time when David is making preparations to build the, next, to build the temple. And David exhorts young Solomon, and it says this in verse 6. It says that he called his son and he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed blood on the earth in my sight. But behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be called Solomon. There it is. It doesn't tell us that in, in, in the previous scriptures. We find out about this in 1 Kings, and then we find out about it in Chronicles 22. But back in Samuel, there's no mention of Solomon being the one. And incidentally, Solomon was the fourth son who was to be born from Bathsheba. The fourth son. In 1 Chronicles 3, verse 5, it says, And these were born to David in Jerusalem, Shimei, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And so here he is. So it's a, the reason I bring this up is to, to get the, the, the idea of this family and the inner dynamics of it because it will help you understand the, the intricacies of these relationships. It, it literally is like a soap opera. I mean, I don't even know why they even need any soap operas. They could just go to Samuel and look at this, and it would be a pretty good story the way it is. I mean, you got everything in it. you got, you got lust. you got rape. you got uh, all these other things, murder and deceit. I mean, isn't that what the soap operas are all about? There's nothing else in there, is there? Uh, and so, verse 2, it says, Now Absalom would rise early, and he would stand be, uh, beside the way to the gate. And so it was uh, that when anyone had a lawsuit, they would come to him for a decision. This way to the gate, in, in any gate in any city, what they would have back at these times is this is where they would do their place of commerce. This is where commerce was done. This is where their business dealings were done, right there at the gate. And so what Absalom would do is he would park himself, probably in a little hut, off to the side on the way to the gate so that when people came, they would come to him, they would bow, and he would touch their hand. And, oh, nice Mrs. Lowenstein, nice, nice pearls you got there. And he'd kiss their hand and warm up to them and get all cozy. And everybody would love Absalom. Oh, what a wonderful boy. And the Bible tells us he was so good looking too. He had blonde hair, you know, and it was long. And he weighted every, every year, like, was it five pounds of hair? Every year he would cut off because it got so long. So this guy was like, uh, he was just one of these guys that most of us guys hate, you know. So, so he, he sets outside the gate and he is totally schmoozing everyone. And then Absalom, verse 3, would say to them, Look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. And David evidently had holes in his administration. Uh, you know, D David had his weaknesses and he had his strengths. As a military leader, that was his strength. But an ad administration and these other things wasn't his strength. And it became obvious as, at this time in his life that his weaknesses were showing.
Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who had any suit or cause would come to me, and then I would give him justice. Look at the pronouns in that. Is he an other-centered man? Or is it all about him? I, me. <laughs> it's all about him. It's all about him. And this is unfortunate, but Absalom is now inserting himself into a place that was not appointed to him. Although it may have been needed, that, that may have been the case. And, and David, even if he knew about it, again, he did nothing. He did nothing. And Absalom and his older brothers learned a lot from David and it wasn't all good. And, and that's why it's so important, moms and dads, for us to take a very um, a significant uh, concern for our children. To be in their lives, to understand what they're doing, and, and to be there for them, to listen to them. To be understanding what they're listening to, the things they're watching, the friends they're keeping, the way they're dressing, all these things, and, and to interact with them and to get to know them, to get to know them. And David, this is where he was failing. He, wasn't, he was just checked out as a parent. And today, we parents, if you're a parent or if you're going to be a parent, be involved in your kids' lives. Stay together. Fight the good fight of faith and stay together and let those kids see Christ in you. That's the greatest thing you can give to them is uh, uh, for them to see a mom and dad who love each other even after many, many years of marriage. They still love and respect each other. They're not fighting like cats and dogs. And my dad and my mom are there. They're at my games. They're at my, at my plays and the things that I do. Are you there for your kids? Are you, taking, are you investing in them? Are you listening? Are you tuned in or are you tuned out? Are you checked out? David was a parent who was checked out. And so it was, whenever anyone came to bow down to Absalom, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all of Israel. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The idea here is that, like a thief, he would get it by stealth. He would deceive the people, and that's what he was doing. His desire was to be king. And he thought he would be a better king than his father because he did, after all, what David should have done. David should have taken um, you know, and put his son to death or done something to his firstborn son, but he mentioned nothing. He did nothing. He, the Bible just says he was mad, but he didn't even talk to him, evidently. So Absalom feels like he is now the patriarch. He can almost see his chest puffing out. You know, <laughs> I am the man. Look at my blonde hair. Look at how pretty I am. And even on my Facebook, it says, available. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And Absalom flattered the men and the women of Israel, but mainly the men. And because he was tall, dark, and handsome, he, he took their hearts. Because everybody looks up to a man who's handsome. I don't know if you know this, but you can be a really good leader if, if you're not so good looking but you're a really good leader and you've got all those qualities that God has for a good leader. And then you can have some guy who's really tall and beautiful but stutters and can't even tie his shoes. You put those two guys in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a you know, have people vote, they'll always vote for the tall, handsome. And yet, the short guy with the pimple on his nose who, who's a brilliant leader, he gets kicked to the wayside. But the fancy guy who has to read the teleprompter because he can't even spell or speak, He's the guy who gets it. He wins the prize, right? 
So Absalom flattered those. And Job, it tells this, Job says, Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. What a great heart Job had. He didn't care about flattering anybody. In Proverbs, Solomon tells us, A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. It is so true. When somebody's flattering you, better be careful. Watch the hand of the person who's got their arm around you because the other hand, there's probably a knife. And they're going to come after you. They'll say all kinds of, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so gifted and talented. I wish I was like you. I wish I was just like you. You're so wonderful. And the first chance they get, they'll stab you right in the heart. They'll take you before the media and, and slander you because you didn't call them. You didn't respond to their tweet quick enough. You didn't respond to that message quick enough. Your battery died in your phone and you get to it the next day and they're already lighting up the world because you didn't say hi to them. In Proverbs 29, it says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And although Absalom would use the people of Israel to garner support for his own desire to be king, that's what he did. And how often this kind of treachery and treason happens in companies, and it even happens in the church, where there's a man or a woman whose role is to support or help someone in authority or someone in charge, and rather than fulfill that role faithfully, they begin to secretly build support for themselves, and they seek to undermine them in an attempt to supplant or take their position. This happens all the time in corporations. This happens even in the church today. And it happens in every vocation because of what? Because of pride? Because of jealousy, greed of the human heart. Now it came to pass after four years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I had made to the Lord. Now some manuscripts will read for and um, the, the Latin Vulgate, the Septuagint, the Chaldee scriptures all, all say 40, but there's a handful of other ones that say four. Now, Logically, you can, you can, it's very easy in the Hebrew, by the way, and this is one of the things you're going to find in the book of Samuel specifically and in Kings and Chronicles is when they were translating those original scriptures and, and they were making copies, it's very easy to, uh, to mistranslate a number very easily. It's, it's literally like adding a dot or something like that. It's very um, easy to do. And so often you'll see discrepancies with numbers, especially in First and Second Samuel. There'll be, there'll be number problems. Don't let that throw you because the numbers don't really change the doctrine, okay? But this one is pretty easy because David didn't reign. He only reigned for 40 years, right? And so he's reigning toward the latter part of his, but he's still in it. And so this really is four years, and it makes sense too because it came to pass after four years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron to pay a vow, which I had uh, done. And so he... Um, he goes to this vow that he had made in Jeshur. Um, you know, the reason he went to Jeshur to begin with is because his, grand, his grandfather, uh, who was um, Telmei, the king of Jeshur, that was Absalom and Tamar's grandfather, because their mother was Maacah, that was one of the wives of David. And so now, you know, this is why he went to flee to Jeshur after he killed David's firstborn son from one of his other wives. 
He flees to go to Jeshur because that's where his grandfather lives. Up there, he's got exile. He's got, uh, you know, he can stay there and be protected by his great-grandfather. So that's why he went up there. And, that's, and, and supposedly, he made a vow. Supposedly he made a vow. So he goes to Hebron, and this was not only Absalom's birthplace, but also the place where David ruled for seven and a half years. And he says in verse 8, For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Jeshur in Syria. Now vows were sacred and binding. Vows are serious business. When you make a promise, when you make a vow to do something. In Numbers chapter 30 it says this, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord and swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So a vow is a very significant thing. And David, even though he was a wounded man and sick, we believe, at this point in his life, David wasn't going to get in the way of his son fulfilling a vow. That, that just wouldn't be David. In fact, David would probably pay the cab to get him up there if he had to, to make sure that his son did fulfill the vow. But Jesus tells us that it's, uh, it's, it's better that we don't make a vow, that we don't swear by anything. It's better not to make any vow. Don't make a vow. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So whether he really took a vow or whether it was just him being deceitful, we really... We really don't know. But isn't it true that there's nothing new under the sun? Solomon said that. There's nothing new underneath, under the sun. And Paul, speaking to Timothy, his protege, he said this, Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now, as I read this, I want you to think about Absalom and David. Perilous times shall come, and, and he's speaking of the days that we're living in now. And, and even further in history. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Was Absalom a lover of self? I think he, he probably was. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, tradey, tra- excuse me, traitors, Heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Notice this, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So Absalom is thinking, oh, I got this vow, Dad. I got to go fulfill, and I got to go do my offering, my sacrifice. I got to do all this. And here he's acting all pious and religious, but deep in his heart, it's none of that. He has a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Going his own way, going his own direction, He was a patient but cunningly deceitful politician, Absalom. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went. And David would not go get in the way of this, of course. In fact, it seems at this point that David seems to be just resigned to whatever the Lord would have to do. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And I think it's a good place to be when you've finally been broken You know, it takes a while. It takes a long time for a person to be broken. Not everybody is broken. We're all going through the process of continually being broken, but I'm talking about when you're broken, when your will is finally broken, when you finally get to that place in your life where you've tried everything, you've done everything, and you're suffering the consequences for it, and you're laying at the the bottom of some jail cell, or you're laying, you know, your, um, your, your life is just a complete mess, and you're at the point where you're like, oh, God, 
I've done all this. And Lord, I deserve everything you got. I deserve all the punishment. I deserve all of the consequences for this sin. And then when you finally say, Lord, I, I give it all up. And, and they really mean it in their heart. And they finally break. And they're just like, Lord, just take me, whatever you want to do. That, that's where I was. And I'm still, the Lord is still breaking me. I don't want to sound like I'm there because none of us are really there. We're continually being sanctified, right? But being broken is a really good thing. And David here, he's just, Lord, whatever you want to do. That's a beautiful place to be in. And for a human being to get to that place, it takes sometimes, most of the time, it takes a long time. Some people are in their 70s and their 80s before they finally give it all up. And they're just like, Lord, I've lived a life of debauchery. I've been a criminal all my life. I've, done, I've, I've been a, an idolater. I've been a fornicator. I've been an adulterer. I've been all these things. I've been a thief. I've been a cheat. I've been a sneak. I've been everything in between. And Lord, you've allowed me to live and I still got breath. And, and they crack like an egg and they come to Christ. It's a wonderful thing to be broken. And I believe David at this point is such a beautiful place. But usually people don't get here unless they really go through it. There's a process. And what David had went through in his life, what he's already seeing, what God has already told him is coming, and it begins to happen, and David's like, okay, Lord, you got my attention. You've been faithful to me from the moment I stepped out of that field Tending, tending to those sheep, when you anointed, when you had Samuel anoint me at my father's house, from that moment, God, you've been with me every step of the way. You've allowed me to be the king over Judah, and then you allowed me to be king over all of Israel, and then you allowed me to finally to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. What a blessing that was, and now I've got this palace, and I've got all these people, and everything is great, and it's great, and then I mess it up, and I look at her. I look at Bathsheba and I have to have her, so he has her. And then to cover up the, the baby that's forming in her womb, he's got to quickly get, his, get her husband to, to be with her. And he's a more man of God than David is. And he says, I can't touch her while my brothers are out in the field. I'm not going to do that. So David goes, the only way I can cover this up is I've got to kill this guy. So he does. He has him killed. And now to think after all that, he's just, he's broken. He's had it, and now he's reaping the, the rewards. He's reaping the rewards because the wages of sin is death, and he's seeing it played out, and that's a hard thing to see, and it's usually when we experience really tough things like that, even though you've been forgiven, and I would encourage you to never let go, and we're going to have to end here because we've got a lot more to go through. But I want you to just think on this tonight. Even though you've been forgiven, and even though you still may be dealing with difficulties from those things of your past, and many of us do, aren't there things in your life that you could just wish you could go back and just undo? Like maybe you could go back in a time capsule and go back to a specific date. A specific date, and then and to be encounter the very same thing where you really messed up. You did something. You said something. And, and, I'll, and you would just love to go back and go back to that spot and put, press the play button again and then do something different. How we would all love to do that and to avoid what we are experiencing today. It could be a divorce. It could be kids. 
out of that first divorce of yours. And now the kids are a mess because they never saw you and your, your spouse together and you broke up and you fought like cats and dogs and, and now they don't want anything to do with either one of you and now they're living in somewhere else out in the country. One is out in you know, Washington State, the other one's in Key West, another one's in Maine and the other one's in the Southern California, just as far apart as they can be from one another because they don't want anything to do with you because of that past that you would just love to go back and say, Lord, and let me encourage you with something. And we'll, we'll have to end here. Never let go of the promise that I spoke to you early. Go with me, please. Because there, I know there's a couple people in this room, probably maybe more than that, that really need to hear this. Go with me to 1 John. And again, I'm a broken record tonight, but I, I got to do this. I feel compelled to do this. So let's go to 1 John chapter 1. And again, this is something we have heard over and over again. And I hope you hear it again and again and again because it's a promise that I think if most people would take for, for true and to live in that reality, their lives would be so much different. But instead, they're, they're taking pills because they, 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 they don't feel forgiven. They don't think they're forgiven, even though they've asked God to forgive them for whatever sin it was, right? But they don't feel forgiven. And let me say something else. Your feelings will lie to you. Never go by your feelings. If David went by his feelings, he probably would have committed suicide. He had to believe in the promise of God, as do we. We have to believe what God has said. And the, 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 to the extent that we believe this, that we're going to read, and you know what I'm going to read, to the extent that we really believe it and we grasp it and we act in, in accordance in faith to it and say, you know what, I have sinned, God, I've, I've asked you to forgive me, please forgive me, God, and give me the gift of repentance that I won't do this again. If you believe what the Word of God says, you can walk away from that moment with God as if you had never done it. Can you imagine? Most of us, when we do something, we can ask God to forgive us. We may feel Okay, I'm forgiven. But then we go along and we, we beat ourselves up for a few days to make us feel better about ourselves. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. If that is your case, then you are atoning for your own sin. If you beat yourself up and you allow the enemy to beat yourself up, I believe you're not allowing God to do what he would like to do with this scripture. Let's read it together. It's in 1 first, first John. Let's start on verse 5. It says, This is the message, John says, which we have heard from him, from Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we say, and notice John is including himself in this. Please take notice of that. Yes, the great apostle John, he uses pronouns. This is one place where pronouns are good <laughs> in our culture. <laughs> pronouns that are written are okay because they, they're referring to a certain person, okay? And it's speaking of him, John, the male, okay? 
If we say that we have no sin, notice he includes himself right in it because he's a member of the church as well. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If there's one verse, church, family of God, brothers and sisters, that you memorize, memorize this one. Seriously, this week, memorize this. Memorize not only the scripture reference, but memorize it in whatever Bible you have, and you remember that verse because the devil is going to challenge you on that, and your own flesh is going to say, I don't feel forgiven because of what I've done. Well, did you ask God to forgive you? Yes. Then why are you still wallowing? Why are you still acting like you just committed the sin when God has forgiven you? The only one who's looking at it is you. When we confess it and he forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, basically the blood of Christ is covering that thing. God looks down and goes, I don't see it. But yet we're going, yes, Lord, it's here. Let me show it to you. I don't see it. And yet we're still walking around like the wounded. I don't know if I'm forgiven. And there's people that I love People that I know that are still stuck there. They're real believers, but they just won't. It's not that they can't. They, they will not for some reason. You know, the devil has done some tricky stuff to our hearts and our minds in this corrupt world that we live in. We stop believing in what God says. Instead, we believe the enemy's lies, and we believe what we're feeling inside, don't you? I don't know about you, but beware of your feelings. Don't be led by your feelings. There are so many you know, destructive things that happen when we follow our feelings. Well, just do, what the, you know, just do what you're feeling. No, don't do what you're feeling. Stop and think about it first. For heaven's sake, you got a brain. God gave you a brain. There's all kinds of chemicals going on in your body, endorphins and everything going, you need to do and, and, and the devil's going, yes, you need to do that. And, and the Lord's going, don't do it. <laughs> and we're like, I'm going to do it. It feels right. I'm going to do it. And then finally you do it, and then, you're, and then you end up in jail. And the devil goes, I thought you'd do it. Everybody else did it too. And God is going, my poor child. Slow down. Stop. What was that stop, drop, and roll? Remember Dick Van Dyke did that, that thing about fires and stuff like that? That's a pretty good thing, except don't roll. Just stop and drop, okay? Stop and drop on your knees and ask God to forgive you. Stop and drop and believe what he said. And if he, if he, if he is, is faithful in what he said, then you can walk away from that moment as if you had never sinned that sin. You can walk away from the guilt of it. Now, are you going to forget about it? Chances are you're not going to. But when the devil or your flesh comes and says, you are just like David, and you can say, you know what? But David also knew that he was forgiven. You read Psalm 51 and you read Psalm 32, and you see that David knew that he was forgiven. He knew that he was forgiven, but he knew there was consequences. And boy, they're a bitter pill. They are a bitter pill. And so if you're experiencing those circumstances tonight, don't ever lose sight of the truth that you've been forgiven. Because if you don't, you're going to walk stunted. Your growth in the Lord is going to be stunted. You're going to be trying to atone for your own sin. And you're not God. 
I'm not God. I can't pay the price for my sin. There's one who paid the price. Trust and believe in him. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Hmm. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word says that your word was written for our nurture, our admonition. It was there for instruction for us, instruction in righteousness. Lord, it's there to bring conviction. It's there for our learning. It's, it's for all of these things, God. And, and tonight, Lord, help us as we go through this very difficult uh, period in David's life where he's experiencing these things. Lord, help us to not be... Um, dissuaded and um, overtaken, Lord, by the consequences that we may go through, even from past sins that you've already forgiven, Lord. Help us not to walk in that any longer, Lord, but to walk in newness of life, knowing that you've forgiven us, Lord, and set us free from this stuff, Lord. It, all it does is it, it just wreaks havoc on us, and Lord, we're already dealing with, you know this, God, this culture, this, these things that are happening in our society, in our country right now, is, is hard, it's hard enough to deal with let alone the, the things internally that we're going through right now, knowing our own hearts and our own issues. Lord, please give us freedom. Set us free again, Lord. Even for those of us who know you, Lord, set us free. And set us free from the preconceived ideas that we've heard that, that are not biblical. Set us free from the things that we have put upon ourselves. Set us free from the things that somebody else has told us that's not even in your word. I don't care if they're a pastor or whoever they're at or if they got wings and they're floating. It doesn't matter. God, you alone, your word is everything. And Lord, I pray that you'd set my brothers and my sisters free. Set me free from anything from my past. And if I haven't confessed it, Lord, help me today, tonight, before I hit that pillow, to confess every known thing that I can think of, Lord. And you will be free to forgive us and to cleanse us. And Lord, may you just take the weight of that, the guilt, the shame, and just cause it to rise up off of us, Lord, because that is what you purchased on the cross, among many other things. You provided that for us. And may we walk in newness of life, and while the world looks at us and says, you people are crazy, Lord, let us be crazy, but let us be honoring you, Jesus, and glorifying your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Amen.